Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hi, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, with me today is Ted Burkhan, uh, who is the president of Hot Paper Lantern Agency in New York City. Welcome, Ted. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm sure you're tired of everybody starting any podcast with you at, uh, with the forced joke of making it a TED Talk, so I'm not going to do that. Um, I appreciate that, Carmen. But, but I do want to know, when the day that you saw that there were things called TED Talks, how did you respond to that entire movement? Well, first, I was flattered. I mean, to name a, a whole uh, movement after me was just uh, a huge honor. <laughs> mm. All joking aside, it's, it's it's actually become a running joke uh, at work and with a lot of clients um, of when I, anytime I speak, it's TED Talks now. So it's uh, it's become a part of my life, whether I like it or not. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it isn't, you know, um, by mistake that people say that because I think that when, you know, we've worked together for a number of years and I think that the, the way that when you do talks, they tend to be um, very engaging and I think you have a really interesting perspective. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because um, I find myself reaching out to you when I want a broader perspective. So maybe I'll start there. Um, you know, you're, you had a history major in, in college. Um, you're a president of an agency. What drove you to, to move into this kind of part of business and and why do you like doing kind of the agency work uh, in particular in, in, at this period of time in, in uh, history? Well, it kind of goes back, Carmen, to what you just referenced, uh, you know, me being a history major in college. Like, like many students, I went to college not knowing what I wanted to be um, and, what, uh, and not knowing what I wanted to major in. I ended up majoring in history because I love history and I, I really loved writing. And it was sort of a major that combined both. And uh, um, somewhat unrelated to the major, I quickly became interested in uh, journalism and, and in particular broadcast journalism and did a few internships in college. And then my first few jobs out of college were working in broadcast journalism, uh, particular, and specifically for two radio stations in New York City. And, and for one of those stations, I was assigned to cover the mayor's beat, who at the time was no other than uh, Rudy Giuliani. And um, <laughs> <laughs> in a different time, a different era, for sure. And, uh, you know, anyone who, who knew the mayor uh, when he was uh, the mayor of New York City um, knew him as a walking, talking press conference. So I really cut my teeth on um, following him around day in and day out and covering his press availabilities and really learning how uh, someone like uh, mayor of New York City and his press staff interact with uh, journalists. And from there, I actually went to go work for him and, and was a uh, press secretary for the Department of Buildings. So um, <laughs> having been a journalist and then flipping over to the other side and being sort of the target of journalists <laughs> uh, and working with them every day on the firing line was just a, a fascinating experience to me. Um, but to be honest, Carmen, like between the journalism and the, the, the press secretary job, I love both, but I, I didn't um, love them enough to pursue them sort of as my career path. So uh, at the time I, I left uh, in the late 90s when the, the, the dot-com boom was raging. And I often say to people, you could have fallen off the back of a truck and landed a job in public relations. And 
that's pretty much what I did. And I haven't looked back. I've been in the agency world um, ever since. And uh, gosh, as the agency world evolved uh, quite <laughs> quite a bit in the last 20 plus years. Um, but I think one thing that has remained really central and uh, consistent uh, throughout and kind of ties back to your original question is this mm-hmm. Companies need help telling their stories. Um, they need help finding those stories. They need help constructing those stories and then telling those stories in ways that are relatable um, and authentic and believable uh, to whatever audiences they want to reach. And uh, that that's something I've been working on for, for the past 20 years. And it's gotten me out of bed pretty much every morning wanting to keep doing it. Well, why do you th- why do you think that's a, it's evolved that way? Why do you think that the story now has become the the heart, where you know twenty years ago it was the data or it was the um, the kind of subservience to the uh, investor relations crew? What 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 are the factors you think that drove it to where it is now? Well, I think uh, gosh, there's so many ways to break that down. It's a really great question. I, I I think I'll start with the the stakeholders. You know, if you think about the, the the ecosystem of stakeholders that a company has to deal with day in day out. Um, you know, outside of the investors, uh, the the employees, the customers, the regulators, um, they become so much more important and central to the 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 health of the brand mm. that companies don't have a don't have a choice anymore. I mean, they can no longer be beholden to. To investors, they and in fact, we're working with a few clients right now who have really woken up and recognized the fact that, you know, in order to please the investor base, you really have to first focus on the employee, mm-hmm. and then if you have a happy employee, then you're going to probably have a happy customer, and if you have a happy customer, then you're probably going to have a happy investor, and and I think that requires really strategic storytelling. I mean, you know, people demand transparency. They demand authenticity. Now companies can no longer bullshit their way through, um, through certain subjects and topics, uh, especially after 2020, especially after the reckoning of COVID, um, and the calls for racial justice. I mean, these are, these are topics that companies can't hide behind and, and it's forced them to sort of come out and, and, and be honest and transparent with these different stakeholders. Um, and that, you know, that, requires first and foremost figuring out well what stories should we be telling hmm. and then how do we tell them in effective ways so that honestly customers and employees and other stakeholders actually care well i mean when you when you talk about it that way in in terms of kind of the ecosystem of of all of the audiences um it it seems to me that that's what sets the context for um for the concept of of being allies to people when when you shift to the employee being the focus. You're really recruiting people um, because they have a belief in your organization. And, you know, belief systems are not something companies, aside from maybe Disney, maybe Ford, uh, invested in. So why do you think um, purpose or belief is rising now? And how does that tie into the, the nonprofit world where you see so many bigger causes being embraced in partnership through corporations or individuals or NGOs? Listen, I don't think companies woke up in 2020 or even in the last three to five years and said, 
you know, all of a sudden we want to be nice and we want to give back and we want to, um, you know, really uh, extend a hand and help our employees on, on all sorts of fronts. Mm-hmm. I think they recognized that there was real value to their business in doing all that. And that, you know, if you just look at something like employee productivity and the impact that that has on the bottom line of the organization. And, and, and when, you know, obviously bottom line is a broad term, but like in terms of being competitive, in terms of being able to recruit and retain the best talent, in terms of attracting and retaining loyalty from customers, mm. like these are things that really do impact the future health and state of the business. So I think, you know, companies and listen, institutional investors drove a lot of this, you know, a lot of the, you know, the investor audience started to demand that that companies pay more attention to the impact that they were having on the environment and on society mm-hmm. and their governance structure around all of that. And so, you know, the fact that once they made that, once businesses made that connection and said there's real value here, you know, this can either help improve or potentially hurt our our business. That's when I think they started really investing um, in in more strategic communications, but more importantly, in in taking action around truly caring about and helping these stakeholders that we keep talking about. But they all also recognize they can't do it by themselves. And this is mm. where your your third parties come into play, your NGOs and your nonprofits, where you know these are these are organizations that are already on the ground, operating in various areas, helping people in need and helping other organizations in need. So, so I think a lot of companies realize rather than create our own, let's tap into that system. Let's tap into them so that we can accelerate the good and the impact that, that we can, that we want to have on whatever it is that they're focused on. Well, you know, you've, 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 I've been doing this for eight months now. I've been interviewing a lot of different people, but you're the, you're the first one that got me to think about this issue differently. So the, the context of, of everything you set on, you know, around the the movement um, for corporations to think differently and for people maybe to invest a little bit more of themselves or their interests uh, in, in a joint agreement with a company or another institution. It gets me to something maybe more personal. And, and, it's, um, and it has to do with why. Um, can you remember the first nonprofit or the, or the first philanthropic activity that you ever did? I'd have to think about it. Um, one comes to mind, but I, I don't I, I don't know if it was actually the first, but it was mm-hmm. one of the first that I really invested considerable time in. Mm-hmm. Was it was it something that um, that somebody led you to, or was you know what was what was the impetus for for wanting to get involved? It was something that someone led me to. It was a, a mm-hmm. friend of mine uh, introduced me to the executive director. Of an organization called Youth About Business, uh, mm-hmm. which runs uh, summer business camps um, in different locations throughout the country uh, for high school students, mm-hmm. and um, he introduced me to the executive director because at the time they had grown to a certain point where they really needed to start thinking about their brand mm-hmm. and how they're communicating in the marketplace. So he wanted me to have a, an introductory conversation with the executive director to figure out what are some steps they can start to take to sort of wrap their arms around that issue? Yeah. No, I, I think that when you can, the, the point that I'm making is that when you get to be a certain 
age or you have a certain skill set, when you can put that in the service of a different organization, it, it turns something on in you and it turns a switch on. And you realize that there are ways for you to share your knowledge or share your ability or share your experiences with people. And, and I've noticed that that may be an outcome, that may be an accelerated outcome of social media, that people can see more, see more of the landscape and respond more. So, you know, for me with, you know, kids who are 18 and 21, when they were children, we adopted a rhinoceros. I mean, you know, it wasn't in our backyard, but it was in Africa. And it was a great way for them to see that, you know, giving a little bit of money on a month to month basis would have an impact on, you know, an animal in a far off place. And that type of connection that you can get uh, and the response, kind of the, the, the call and response that you get when you can, when you can stay connected to people, um, I find that's happening more and more. So do you see um, something bigger happening here in terms of the way that we connect with nonprofits and, and, and are there things we can do differently, especially, you know, as you see being more hands-on involved in several different nonprofits? Do you see that because of technology or do you see it because of the point in time that we are in history? I think it's it, it's less about the point in time we are in history, although that certainly doesn't hurt. I think it does mm -hmm. help get people more involved in, in philanthropic activity and giving back to others who are in need. But I think your point around technology is the primary reason uh, why it is. There's really no excuse, right? There's There's no... There's no reason why someone like myself can't provide counsel and expertise and then connect and use social media and other mm -hmm. forms of uh, technology and, and advanced communications to connect these organizations um, with others that will benefit them in, in the long run. I mean, it really is, and we say this all the time, even just dealing with, with regular clients, it's a, gr it's a great way to level the playing field, right? Mm. Um, yeah, things require money, of course, and investment always helps, but, um, social media platforms, if they're used effectively, if they're used the right way, even organizations that are operating on small budgets, um, if they know how to use these channels effectively can, um, can have a lot of impact on their, on their awareness and, and, and interest in in getting in people getting involved so i do think it's carmen it's more the technology piece of this that that's facilitating um sort of this trend or this growth of of people giving back and and really lending their expertise but more importantly and you you made a point of this earlier in your question more impo importantly teaching right like this is not this shouldn't be about you know being there a hundred percent of the time for this organization and helping mm -hmm. them this is about teaching them to fish and making sure that they can do it on their own. Um, that's how you scale. And that's how mm. you enable these organizations to overcome some of the, the pretty fundamental obstacles that, that a lot of these nonprofits face uh, in getting their message out and, and generating new audiences to get involved and to volunteer and donate. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that, to me, that's the big difference that I saw. Um, you know, running a nonprofit that was inside a, a corporation for a long time, um, I found that overlapping the strategic plan that I had for the company 
um, and for communications with the over with the the strategy that the nonprofit had gave me areas where we could teach each other. And so, you know, a particular nonprofit could show us the way that our products were used or could connect us to customers in a different way or to potential employees, but we could show them planning or um, design. And it was really meant to, to hand off knowledge and expertise. So with that in mind, um, how did you get involved in, uh, the Haiti project, the hands up for Haiti and, and what drew you to it? So that was actually through my wife. My wife was volunteering for them. She was introduced to them through a friend and she actually went on a, a trip to Haiti with the organization um, and came back and uh, started talking about, it, it was, a, it was a life-changing experience for her mm -hmm. and started talking to my kids about it and, and to me about it. And um, that led to an introduction with, uh, one of the, the co-founders of Hands Up for Haiti. And it was a very similar conversation to, to the conversation I had with youth about business, where it was like, we've got these great stories to tell. Um, we're making a lot of progress, but we, we have so much more to go. Like there's just so many issues and so many challenges in country. And uh, we really need help, not just telling our story, but getting our story you know, into the right places. Uh, in front of the right people. And, and that, that was it. I was like, I'm in, I'm sold. And mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be offered, you know, the opportunity to become a board member and I've been a board member for several years now. Um, it's just a, it's a phenomenal organization started by doctors, run by doctors uh, who have made incredible progress in, uh, they're focused on Northern Haiti uh, mm -hmm. in, in helping set up sustainable healthcare clinics and practices, same thing. It's like, it's a teaching concept. It's like, we're going to go down there. We're going to set this stuff up. We're going to teach people how to run it, how to grow it. Um, so that it's sustainable because an organization like that can't afford to be going down there all the time doing it themselves. And they've, they've created this infrastructure down there to help address some really serious um, healthcare issues that the people of Northern, fa Northern Haiti are facing. It, uh, so, I don't know if this is just happenstance or luck or um, that you, you tend to create these things on your own, but I've probably worked with, been friends with, um, involved with eight different people who've done work in Haiti, whether it was through working in an orphanage or starting their own medical nonprofit to fly in and bring product or to set up infrastructure or to redevelop you know, parts of the, of, uh, the built environment. What is it about Haiti that makes people want to engage there? What do you see? Is it that the scope and scale is manageable because it's an Island? Is it because it's closer? Uh, it does have to do with the culture and the people, you know, what's unique about that, that country? Well, I think first and foremost, if you get to know, people who are from Haiti, um, you know just how wonderful they are. So I, I think it's a contagious um, mm -hmm. thing that that really um, in a good way infects people and, mm -hmm. and wants what want, you know gets people to want to help even more. So I think that's first and foremost. Second, I do think it's really a, a sad and um, and at the same time fascinating story uh, of that country. 
where it sits, you know, proximity-wise in the shadows of, of the United States, right? One of the mm-hmm. most advanced, wealthiest countries in the world, yet it is one of the most impoverished countries, you know, um, you know, in the world itself. So, like that, that juxtaposition, that contradiction, um, it's almost unbelievable, honestly. And uh, I think it's hard for people to fathom. Uh, until they get involved in an organization like Hands Up for Haiti, until they see it firsthand and meet the people and see and hear the stories. Um, But not just about how challenging it is to live there, but how um, the perseverance uh, and and how these, you know, so many of these people have overcome so much, uh, but they need more help. And so I really think that's what gets people interested in Haiti. And it also keeps people involved in Haiti. Like they, you know, the, the people that I know have gotten involved have stayed involved and mm-hmm. have not wavered. Yeah. I found the same thing. And, um, you know, I, I find that just understanding the story, the way that they, um, the way they developed the country and, uh, and, you know, took away the, you know, the forest canopy, which created massive amounts of erosion, which created shanty towns, which created, you know, all kinds of water issues and cholera potentially, you know, all of those issues that were tied into kind of an exploitative government. Um, and then there's this complete uh, uprising where people are saying, well, we can rebuild. Uh, and what I, what I find fascinating about that is that so many of the people are doing this in different parts of Haiti, or they're doing it in different, you know, parts of the economy or the, or the medical system. Um, what have you gotten out of that experience? What have you pulled from that that maybe somebody who hasn't um, gotten that deeply involved in a nonprofit uh, would, you know, really be surprised by? Well, th- this may, <laughs> I'll, I'll catch this by saying this may be sort of a lame way to answer that question, but it's how I feel. So I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. And that is, it's given me perspective, honestly, like, you know, all of our problems are relative. You know, my problems are relative to the world around me and what I experience every day. Um, there's always people in this world that are going to have more than you. There's always people in this world that are going to have less than you. Um, but but really getting to know the challenges that, that, that the country of Haiti faces and um, the wonderful people of Haiti really puts things in perspective. And it's one of the things that I, I really wanted to convey to my kids, and I know my, my wife did as well, because she was, again, the one who originally got involved, is to like try to educate them about what life is like in other countries and, and how challenging life can be, but, but also how we can help. And, and even if it's um, you know in the larger scheme of things, a small amount of help, it still help. And so just for me, honestly, Carmen, it's been about putting things in perspective for my own life and um, and just knowing how fortunate I really am. And and it's like, I really feel like it's the least I can do. And, I, and you know, if you talk to the people at Hands Up For Haiti, I'm constantly saying to them, I don't think I'm doing enough. I don't think that I'm providing enough value. Like I always <laughs> feel like I could be doing more. It really feels that way. Um, but it, but I guess that's what keeps me going in part. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the the idea of engaging with a group where you can bring a particular expertise. Um, it's hard for you as an individual to, to gauge how helpful that is, even though people may be thrilled that you're there. Um, you know, you can help them align or, or hit their message harder. If you're a physician, you can drop whatever you want and, you know, um, have an impact. 
my friend Joel, who was uh, who had worked on the USS uh, Hope during the Banda Aceh um, tsunami, was a, a kid had been uh, had water inhalation, mud inhalation, essentially into his lungs, and they brought him up to this aircraft carrier, and the kid eight years ago, 10 years ago, had been burned over 60% of his body and had massive scar tissue. And as they brought him into the one of the operating suites uh, to look at his lungs, um, they said, well, it's a shame we don't have a burn expert here. And the guy in the next bay said, well, I, I'm from you know Boston Children's and that's what I do. And so he, f- he flew the family to Boston and the kid spent six months getting his scar tissue removed and he could walk again and he could move and he had you know all of these other things because of happenstance because of being there and i'm sure that the doctor was like well i was just there <laughs> you know what did i do being there is a is a big deal especially with nonprofits you know they they run on such a a, a razor thin margin you know they're trying to do so much with so little what do you tell them about the companies that they may look to for money? Or what do you tell them about their message that maybe people who are listening to this, who, who run a nonprofit or are thinking about starting a nonprofit maybe wouldn't realize? So the nonprofits that I've dealt with, uh, pretty much every one of them has, you know, their, their executive director or their president is usually their founder, right? So it's someone who's been living, breathing and eating the, uh, the movement um, and the effort since day one. And, and they're doing it like, you would expect because they absolutely believe in the mission and they've pretty much dedicated their lives or at least part of their lives to, to helping the cause or trying mm-hmm. to further the cause. And the biggest challenge that those people typically face is articulating a really clear and concise story, right? They're, they're, you know, sometimes a bit all over the place. Um, they're sometimes long winded. Um, <laughs> but probably most importantly, they're often not really thinking about the audience that they're trying to reach and what message and storyline is going to resonate most. So, you know, at the very core of what I try to do with these organizations is just help them think through who is the audience that you're, that they're trying to reach. And then what story is going to resonate them because resonate with them. Because listen, even if you think about Haiti, there's a lot of nonprofits that are in Haiti. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of competition among the nonprofits in every cause that you can possibly imagine. So, you, you know, just like Carmen, you and I have worked, you know, on the in the private sector with for a long, long time. It's about how do I get to the point quickly? How do I generate sort of the or peak the maximum amount of interest so we get that audience wanting more? And and it's mm-hmm. also about you know making sure they understand that it's not a launch and leave scenario. This is about ongoing communication. It's about being in front of the audience repeatedly telling your story, having consistency in hopes that one day you're going to convert them to a major donor or to an ongoing contributor to the organization. Mm-hmm. Hey, I found that it's very hard for a founder to let go and to transfer authority because it becomes so wrapped up in who they are, not just the nonprofit that they do. And I've, I've worked, actually worked with, <clears throat> with a nonprofit profit of youth build, um, Dorothy as she transitioned. Um, and it was fascinating that she knew this. She was self-aware enough to say, well, we need somebody different. We need somebody with a, a complementary set of skills. Um, I, I think that 
the the idea of showing people why a couple of well-placed stories um, matter so much, I think is vital now. With so many people home, you know, maybe not employed or underemployed or working from home, we have these captive audiences. What do you teach people about the storytelling process? And, I, and I'll, I'll frame it in terms of something I did with YouthBuild, which was I did a fundraiser for them. And, and the simple story was, you think you're donating your time and your money to change these people's lives. And what I'm telling you is they're going to change yours and you're not going to be prepared for it. And that turn on the story gave me an in. It gave me something that they would talk about when they went home. Well, how is that going to happen? Why would that happen? What do you tell people when they have to turn on that storytelling ability? Because the stories are there. Most times people just don't realize anybody else would want to hear them. So this, the, my answer to this question harks back to my days, my, my brief stint as a journalist coming right out of college. And that was, I worked for 1010 Winds Radio, uh, which uh, for those of you who don't know, is a 24 seven uh, news radio station in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and the editor uh, for when, who, whoever's on shift, the editor sits in the middle of the, the room and there's sort of a pit around him with the, mm-hmm. the reporters and the anchors and the, pr- the production assistants and so on and so forth. And he would make the ultimate call on what story would lead the newscast on every 20 minutes, they would reset it. And I never remember my first day in there, he stood up and he said, you would get to pitch your story, right? And you'd sort of lobby for your story to be the lead. <laughs> Sometimes it was obvious, but sometimes it wasn't. But the first day I was there, he said, if it bleeds, it leads. And and there's a there's a ton of truth to that statement. And what it what it really means in our world now, and especially for nonprofits that are trying to articulate their story, is you know, you have to every great story has friction in it. And mm. and and you need to find what that friction is. And that friction, you can't oversell it but you also can't undersell it. And you certainly can't lead with the solution. You have to lead with the friction um, because that's what grabs the attention of the listener or of the reader. And then what you really need to work hard on is connecting the the solution to that friction so that <laughs> there's a real um, flow to your story. And uh, uh, and and it gives the the reader or listener hope. So I, I work a lot with these nonprofits just to sort of understand. You know, listen, there's no shortage of friction, right? If that's why they're in, doing what they're doing. They're, they're yeah. trying to solve huge problems, but it's about how do you articulate that friction in a way that's believable, that's authentic, and that quite frankly will stop people in their tracks and and make them want to hear more. How do you? And this is a more sensitive topic because the the like you i kind of came up through reporting so i did i was a legal editor and then i was a sports editor because uh i took all the tests to be a news editor and uh they they told me i wasn't smart enough so they put me in sports um <laughs> it's fine i enjoyed it it was great uh with the, everybody else and i did the bullpen you know i was in the in the scrum where you've got eight different people around you and you're just yelling out things there is a a process that you go through there that is like uh, survival of the fittest. And, you know, it took me two weeks before I got a headline into a newspaper, you know, because I was horrible at it. Um, how do you teach grit? 
how do you show people that it's the tenacity to push through? And it doesn't have to just be in the nonprofit side, but with everything that's happening now, there's a generation of kids that can't turn to somebody and say, well, what did you do when this happened? Well, how did you handle graduating from high school here or graduating from college or you know, losing your job because of this? And you, you make me think that because those experiences that we had, um, a lot of cases, we just wanted a job, <laughs> you know, we weren't thinking about a career. Um, but there is something about this entire experience that we're going through right now where there isn't a blueprint and it's, and it can feel really difficult for people at any age. So how do you teach that? How do you explain that? It's a great, to- great question. Great topic. Uh, the way I would, um, teach it and the way I sort of try to practice it is I have this tremendous fear of failure and it's actually driven me throughout most of my adult life and especially in my professional career. Mm -hmm. It really did start back when I was interning for a local TV station in Burlington, Vermont, where they kind of gave me the camera and said, you know, press this button, press that button, but whatever you do, don't muck it up because we got one shot and we need it for the six o'clock news. (laughs) And it's like, you know, that your heart starts racing and, you know, it's like the whole world now depends on you, or at least you think it does. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's really honestly, Carmen, is that fear of failure. And so that carried me through the being in that news pit at 1010 wins radio. It carried me through when I used to have to brief, you know, the mayor and and his press staff, which was, you know, not an easy thing to do in a very scary environment, intimidating environment. And it certainly carried me through the agency world where, listen, the agency world's all about failure. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, you're going to fail a lot, you know, and you're going to, you're going to lose new business pitches and you're going to, you're going to lose clients. You get fired. You know, it, it's, it's about resiliency. And for me, it's about fear of failure that drives me to try to win, you know, all the time. But, but I don't mistake that though, with obviously you're going to fail and you know, the, the failure is okay. Like you learn from failure, but you really should be fearful of it. You shouldn't like it. <laughs> you shouldn't yeah. be comfortable with it. Well, but that's the thing. I, you know, I always tell people that my best stories are the ones that, you know, the failures that I had. And I don't know if I've ever said it on the uh, podcast here, but the, the one that got me was when I had dropped the L in, um, in public on a report that said the, the future of public affairs. And, <laughs> you know, I contend more people would have read that report. But, um, you know, I can remember the feeling. I can remember what that felt like when it happened. And I thought, well, I'm going to get fired. Um, I can remember getting fired from jobs. Um, Moving through that, telling the story of that is, is interesting. And, you know, when you, when you look at the amount of change that's going on right now, virtually every one of us is bumping up against failure, whether you can't expand your business or whether you can't find employment or whether you're worried about, you know, surviving or, you know, protecting your, your parents or your, you know, there's, there's this constant pressure. Are we learning something different? Are we going to come out on the other side of this as a, as a different society? I, I sure hope so. I mean, you know, everyone's sort of trying to predict the future right now of like, do do all these changes remain in place even once we have the vaccines deployed and mm-hmm. things return to, you know, what, whatever normal looks like. Um, I, I do hope we're, we're changed uh, for the better. I, you know, and listen, let's be honest. There are people that have been more affected by this pandemic than others. You know, the mm-hmm. pandemic has not been bad for, for a lot. 
of people. And it's been absolutely terrible uh, for others. And so you've got like all these different experiences on both sides of the spectrum, really, really good or really, really bad. Uh, but my hope is that there's some fundamental like changes that come out of this that we don't ever go back to um, that that I think will make our personal and professional lives better as a whole. But but honestly, only time will tell. And, and I mean, you know, human beings have very short attention spans and they have also very short memories. And so my biggest fear is that six months after we, you know, we get the vaccines deployed and we're, we're sort of back to normal operating society that people start to re regress and revert back to doing things the way they were before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that's not the case, but I, I do have sort of like this, this small fear that 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 will happen in, in large in large areas of, of, of our mm -hmm. personal and professional lives. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does because, you know, there's, there's two kind of warring points of view that I'm finding is, you know, the one is that, um, well, it's obvious that, you know, we've been through something and it's, and it'll be a defining, you know, kind of piece of our landscape, the way that, you know, 9-11 was for people or, you know, the London bombings, depending on where you are. But there's another side that says that some people just want to forget traumatic or disruptive events, and they want to move on. And, you know, when I think of it in terms of allies and the way that we relate to people, what I'm hoping is that there's a better kind of deeper examination of empathy. You know, not just sympathy, which I feel bad for that person, but I can move on. But empathy is, you know, I've put themselves, I put myself in their place and I, and I feel what they're feeling. I try to. That's the part for me with business, with personal lives, with putting aside, you know, an hour every week or two hours every week to talk to people about this. Um, that's more important to me now because I've seen spotlights on organizations or on problems. And then I've seen what happens when the spotlights move. And that's one of the things that I find with working with nonprofits is when you're in the spotlight, it looks great. You get money, you get people that are interested, et cetera, but eventually it moves on. And once you're back in the darkness again, and you're dealing with, you know, budget cuts, or you're dealing with how to get things off the ground or, you know, failed sponsorship relationships, et cetera, it becomes a lot harder. And I'm wondering if there's a, if there's a movement, maybe it's generational, maybe it's, um, you know, a transfer from baby boomers to millennials or something like that. Do you see anything that, that leads you to believe that maybe we are becoming more empathetic or less empathetic? And I, you know, I say that two weeks after, you know, people stormed the Capitol. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, I think we are, but I could probably find you 10 people within 15 minutes that say we aren't. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that just goes to show you like how, just at least as a country, how divided we've become and how different um, we are, uh, you know, depending on, you know, your, your upbringing and your background and your socioeconomic status and where you live uh, in the country. But I will tell you, I will tell you this, we are talking, we are having more conversations than ever before about empathy with clients. And, mm. and in particular, as it relates to leadership communications and internal communications, um, you know, the, it's no longer going to be acceptable, I think, and I hope for companies um, to, you know, provide employees with anything less than not just a conducive working environment and support and training, um, but 
really helping them with their personal lives as well, helping them with their different personal situations that arise and how it might affect work. Certainly mental health, I think, will become a bigger part of the human resources um, job and responsibility for for managing employees. Mm-hmm. And I and to me, that all relates back to empathy. It's like, you know, as a leader, as a CEO, you can't sit in the ivory tower anymore um, and, and govern with an iron fist. This is about understanding what other people are going through, trying to the extent that you can put yourself in their shoes and quite frankly, to be a little bit vulnerable. Like it's okay for a leader to be and feel vulnerable in my opinion. Like they should, they should be getting into those conversations with their employees um, about issues that maybe in the past they avoided um, or felt wasn't necessary. Those are now fair game. And I think those leaders that are willing to do that um, are, 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 the leaders of the future. Those are the ones that I think will will really succeed in the future. So I do think there's a shift in progress, but it's going to be choppy. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be across the board. I still think we're going to we're going to find lots of people and organizations that don't do it right. Well, then then I'm going to I'm going to throw you a hardball. <laughs> <laughs> so and I haven't done this to anybody, but it's something that's been thinking. It's been weighing on my mind now. Um, I was talking to someone about when I was a child and uh, I had this, you know, my parents' views, political views bouncing around. And um, it was during the time of Reagan. And uh, I went into high school and spoke to two of my friends who happened to be African-American women. And they started telling me a narrative about Reagan that I wasn't hearing at home. And it was really about this, um, you know, kind of very confrontational you know, racist type of language that his campaign had used and the way that, you know, this welfare mother kind of language that was coming out. And it forced me to pull up and say, well, wait a minute, there's different people who are having different experiences than me. And I was explaining this to somebody, you know, that these two people who I'm, you know, one of them has since, you know, passed away, but but I, I'm friends with the other one and had been friends with both of them, you know, way beyond high school. <laughs> You bring people into your lives and you and you can get an understanding that they experience things that you don't. The two groups that I feel are going through this and becoming increasingly frustrated with the lack of people understanding their position are black people in America and middle-aged white men. And and both feel like they are being manipulated and attacked and they are trying to fight back. And there's a lot of similarities (laughs) between the way that people are on, on the positive side are talking about their audience. If you are conservative, you are talking about the, you know, the white man as, as, you know, somebody who is a victim. Um, If you are you know, on the left and you're talking about, about Black Lives Matter, you're fighting against people saying that it's a terrorist movement. What can we do as communications people or what can we do as people who tie into the nonprofit or the business world to put such a complicated and sensitive issue up to really be discussed? Because there, there are certain similarities, even though, you know, with your, with your own beliefs, you might... Uh, believe that, you know, at least one of those groups might be misreading what's happening to them. So the, 
I think you're right in the sense that there are similarities, but the big difference is, you know, one group perceives it and the other one's actually experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And this leads me to my point and in answer to your question in terms of what can communications, what role can communications play? Um, This is all about communication. This is about the truth. This is about Mm -hmm. facts. It's about science. It's about reality. And, you know, I won't go into what, you know, the last four years have done or the potential long-term damage that it, it, had, it has potentially wrought on, on this country. But we have to somehow figure out a way. And by the way, I don't have an answer to, this, answer to this problem, but we have to figure out a way to get back to facts mm-hmm. <laughs> and people yeah. believing in those facts, because you cannot rationalize and you cannot really effectively communicate with anyone or any group if they see an alternate set of facts and and it, it it becomes impossible and so you know i think there are big problems with social media i think there are big problems with our with journalism and our news business in terms of how information is delivered and fed um, and influencing certain you know everyone all of us um, but we need transparency and and we need reality to 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 be thrust back into our faces because right now we're we're not dealing with a lot of it. Do we legislate that? I mean, do we have to legislate that? I, because I there there isn't a Walter Cronkite. There's not a Tom Brokaw. Um, you know, there there aren't people that you that they point to that universally across politics. People say, well, that person's telling the truth. There is no one source for that, and. You know, if you look at Germany, you know, they said, "Well, yes, we have freedom of speech, but but not for Nazis. <laughs> like, right. We're not we're not going to allow that to happen because there's a reason there." And the irony, right, is that you have to restrict freedom of speech for some people, depending on what they're saying, so that free speech can continue to exist. And that that adult, you know, dichotomy of taking two conflicting ideas, you know, the 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 cognitive dissonance of that and, and, and processing it, you know, what do we do? How do we do that? Is it, um, is it something that you can legislate? Is it something that you have to, you know, is it like a fair, a rewrite of the fairness doctrine or something like that? Well, you know, freedom, and I know this probably sounds somewhat trite, um, given how much has been said recently, but you know, freedom of speech doesn't give you the right to say anything you want. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't that, you know, and so first of all, I think, we as a country need to kind of get back to our roots and to understand what does the law actually say um, and, and, and do. And, and I also do think we need to regulate. I think there needs to be penalties levied against organizations that willfully and knowingly mislead the public. Um, it, it's, it is created, or in part, it's not. They're not solely to blame, but it is created. They have created in part this. They have fueled the fire, and they have, um, can, you know, really accelerated and deepened the divide. Um, and and they're doing it. What people I don't think realize enough is they're doing it because that's how they're making money. Yes. Right. They're they're doing it to to pad in their and deep in their own pockets and so this is all a business model right it's there's no see and by the way it's on both sides like i'm not i'm not pointing fingers at either side it's on both sides and so 
what, what if, and this might sound like complete heresy to some, but what if some of these organizations made a little less money, but, but, yeah. but relayed more truth <laughs> and, and, and more, more transparency? I mean, would that really be so terrible in the larger scheme of things? Well, and that's the piece that gets me is, you know, the, those of us who, who, you know, I have a political science degree, I don't have a history degree, but but it, it the same mechanics apply. When you look at patterns and trends, you know, the people, we talk about election reform, you know, there are vested interests in the media to not, you know, take the money out of elections. Where do they spend all that money? They spend it on advertising. You know, the, the amount of money that media companies make on advertising is insane. So yes, they, they don't want that to, to stop. That's a gravy train. Um, so, so this is where I want to bring it back um, with the time remaining. You know, we talked a little bit about the nonprofit world, and we didn't get to you know all of the nonprofits that you're involved in. Um, and maybe we can come back to that at a, a another podcast to really dive into those. But we talked about how that relates to you know how we partner with people and where we find empathy and then we got into the idea of the construct of the way that the the world is working right now so in light of that in light of you know an insurrection of an impeachment of a change in power of all of these you know of a, of a, of a pandemic of you know an economic collapse so what the question that i come back to so what what does all of this mean to you as a guy who runs an agency in potentially the, you know, the most vibrant and maybe the most uh, challenged city right now, uh, potentially in the world. Um, so what, what do you think this is going to mean to us 10, 12 years from now, this moment in time? Well, I do think this is a watershed moment um, in, in our lifetimes. I, 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 you know, much like 9-11 was, and 9-11 was very, very different from this. Mm-hmm. But just think about the sort of the before and after 9-11 and how life changed for us in this country, both personally and professionally um, and throughout society. I think I think that is very similar to what we are experiencing and will experience here with with the pandemic, um, but but maybe even to a greater extent. So I do think you're going to see, you know, a lot of uh, change and continued change. But here's here's the thing I'd like to sort of leave you with as an answer to this question is, you know, at the end of the day, we just, we, we just really need to treat each other like human beings. Hmm. And, and like, if I, if I try to build my business by treating people like crap, whether it's my employees or my clients, even if I was the most talented communications professional in the world, I would be out of business. And Hmm. so part of this is about restoring some civility to society where we, we can we can disagree we, we can oppose each other on issues um you 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 can fire me and i can fire you but at the end of the day like we treat each other with respect and we treat each other like human beings should be treated and we have just gotten so far away from that i hope that the sort of the healing power that comes to us in the wake of the pandemic where people are just able to reflect more and see how much was taken away from us um, during this time will make them a little bit softer and a little bit kinder. Um, you know, that's, that's just my, that's my hope. That's, that's where I'm trying to head. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to live by. Uh, and I hope others will too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, to me, that is the, the only way that we can look at this 
is um, whether it's, you know, reintroducing uh, civics back into a curriculum or whether it's, you know, helping people understand the, uh, the dignity of work, you know, whether you work with your hands or, or, or whether you, you know, have a professional, it doesn't matter. Um, that sense that everybody deserves dignity, um, you know, we're seeing people dying for no good reason. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a good way to, to, you know, press pause on, you know, being in our own heads and, and kind of driving our own egos. So, so now what, you know, if, if the, so what is, you know, we've got to bring this sense of, of, you know, kindness and decency back. Now what, you know, what do we do? We're, we're not quite there. It's almost like we could see a finish line. You know, we can maybe see the haze of a, of a ribbon that somebody's going to cross at some point, but it's not, it's not coming into view. How do you get, how do you get through this part of it? You know, I was telling somebody the other day, the danger that I see is, and I've noticed this in the last week or two, is that more people are walking around without their masks all the way up. And I think it's because they, they feel like this is ending soon, <laughs> you know, and it's the worst time to do this. Um, what do you do in this period where it looks like we, we, we may have some, uh, you know, return to normalcy? Well, you know, again, th this comes back to um, relying on, on facts and science, uh, which I know many people in this, in this country um, are resistant to. Uh, but, but I think as communications professionals, we have to live by that and we have to lead the way and lead by example in doing mm -hmm. that. It's not going to change everyone, but even if you change the minds of a few people and by change the minds, I don't mean like you should believe what I believe. I mean, like, let's just all follow the same set of facts. Yeah. Like if we're all operating off the same play, you know, play sheet, then we can, or game plan, then we can probably make the right decisions, at least in the near term until this pandemic's over. Um, that, that to me, you know, is, sort of the number one thing I think we can and should be doing, whether that's advising clients, doing within our own organizations, and going back to what we were talking about earlier and just treating people with the dignity and respect they, they deserve, even if you disagree with them or even if you're sort of having to deliver bad news to them. So that's that's job number one, um, you know, I think between now, it really should be something we always do, but certainly yeah. invest the time in doing that. And the other thing I would just say, Carmen, is like, you know, Actions speak louder than words, and and we we talk. We have a lot of conversations with clients about this. It's like, listen, I can, I can create any message you want, but no one's going to believe it unless you actually do something about it. Like, yeah. so why don't you why don't you act first, and then I can create a great message or story around that. And by the way, people will actually believe it, and then and then you'll see a real impact on your business. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that um, that idea of letting the action speak is is something that I I try to teach anybody that's that you know, I'm overseeing is that I'd rather forego, uh, you know, pushing for the PR until I, I'm, we have done a lot. And until I have, you know, multiple ways of, of saying that it's not a smoke screen, that it's not, you know, some sort of, um, simple PR. Um, I think, I think Ted, you've, you've kind of changed a little bit of the way that I, I think of, um, the conversation and the engagement. And I, and I want to thank you for that. Um, the, the idea of being allies for me, um, I think it's, it's, it's coming into focus and your, your views around kindness and, and truth, you know, kind of uh, verifiable truth. There's something in that combination 
that uh, I'm going to take from this conversation and apply it to the others because I think it's, um, again, this may be the advantage of what you're doing in an agency like yours with the variety of people that you're coming in contact with, with the nonprofit work that you're doing. You have some insights here that I think are, are really valuable for other people to hear. So I want to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that, Carmen. And I want to thank you for having me on. I think it's, it's this podcast, um, not just this episode, but everything that you're doing here is great because the world needs more of this. Um, it needs more perspectives like this. And so I appreciate you not only doing it, but including me in it. Well, thank you. It's it's the type of thing that people who like this type of thing like, and that's about all I can say about it. Is <laughs> you know, those who like it really like it. Uh, it's longer format. Some people are like, is is, is he done? What's what's the topic? <laughs> um, but but I, I I think in in this world, it's worth spending time and having a deeper conversation with people. Um, and I think you you kind of bared that out. So so thank you, Ted. I really appreciate it. Um, that's all the time we we have. Uh, as always, if you have comments or questions, please uh, let us know at the uh, Allies Podcast uh, website, or you can email us. And if you have guests that you think we should speak to or ways to improve, uh, let us know. Um, so that's all the time we have. Uh, I'm Carmen Farino, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.